The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. All right, good morning. I want to welcome you this morning to Berean Bible Church. We are continuing our study this morning in 1 John. And as I keep saying over and over and over, hopefully it's starting to sink in by now, I see this book as being about fellowship. Thank you. John is telling believers how to live in a state of fellowship with Yahweh. Another way of saying it, he's telling us how to abide in Christ. Another way of saying it, he's telling us how to be controlled by the Spirit. But as I've also said to you many times, most people see this book as a test that John gives to, so you can tell who's really saved. Okay, so you can be a good fruit inspector. Alright? One commentator says this. So throughout 1 John, the apostle gives these tests of authentic faith. Number one, the moral test of obedience. Number two, the relational test of love, and number three, the doctrinal test of faith in the person and work of Yeshua the Christ. Now, the only test that I agree with here is the doctrinal test. You've got to pass that test, but as long as you do, the rest of this is encouraging you to fellowship. The moral test, the relational test, to me, they just cause us to become judges of fellow believers. And if these fellow believers don't seem to be living up to our standard of obedience and love, then we write them off as unbelievers. And see, that's helpful to us if we can write them off as unbelievers because then we don't have to worry about loving them. Okay? So I, I don't think anywhere in the Bible we are you know, commanded to be fruit inspectors in the sense of examining people's lives. When the Bible says, by, by their fruit you shall know them, the context there is what they say. What they say. What are they teaching? That's how you're going to know the difference. By what they say. Now this section that we're looking at this morning runs from 310b through 324. And the similarity between 311 and 323, both of which mention the command to love one another, form an inclusio. Suggesting that 311 through 24 is regarded as a single unit. It's about love. That's what this section is about. 310, he says this, by this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. And I think that goes with the previous section. Then, the last half, whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So with the last half of this verse, John begins a new discussion on love. Now the little phrase there, is not of God, does not mean not born of God. It's not how John uses this. John is using not of God here to refer to fellowship. The one who does not do what is right is not abiding in Christ, especially the one who does not love his brother or his sister. Now, the absence of love for one's brother Christian shows that the individual who does not love is not in fellowship with God. That's what he's talking about. That's the issue. Verse 16, by this we know love. That He laid down His life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brother. Christ laid down His life. This is the opposite of we saw of taking another person's life as Cain did. Cain showed us what hate is. Yeshua shows us what love is. And the cross is the supreme demonstration of real love. God's love. It's sacrificial. We ought to lay down our lives. Now, he's talking to the brethren here, the believers. He said, since Yeshua laid down His life, we ought to lay down our lives. Repeatedly, in a self-sacrificing love, as the tense of the Greek here shows, we ought to continually be willing to lay down our lives. Now, I think we all realize that those of us who live in America may never have the chance to lay down our lives for another Christian. So John goes on to say, But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Anybody remember what the Greek word for goods here is? Okay, you don't need to know that, but what does it mean? The word is bios. Goods here is bios. 
According to Strong's, bios means life. That is literally the present state of existence. By implication, the means of livelihood. So this word here refers to resources needed to maintain life. Means of subsistence, material goods, property. If you have something that can help somebody live, and you see your brother has a need, and yet you just close your heart against him, he, he asks, how does God's love abide in that? How, do you, how does he abide in you? See, if a believer shuts off his compassion from a brother in need, God's not abiding in him. Or we could say, he's not abiding in Christ. The believer that won't show compassion to a brother in need is not in fellowship with Yahweh. He is not walking in the light. Now, believer, if you never see opportunities to show God's love to others, it's probably because not because there aren't opportunities. It's because you're too self-focused to see them. Because there's opportunities all around us. Many people come to church with the mindset, I need to get my needs met. In fact, many live each day with that selfish focus. They get frustrated or depressed because others are not meeting their needs. I really think the proper way to come to church, the proper way to gather with other believers is with the mindset, Lord, use me to meet someone's needs. See, when you come with that way, the Lord's going to meet your needs and you're going to help to meet somebody else's needs. Again, in Ephesians 4, he talks about us being ministers of grace. Individual believers, we're all ministers of grace. That's our job. We're to minister one to another. Grace. In other words, be an encouragement. Be a support to others. Now, we finished our last study with 318. So this morning I'm going to pick up verse 19 and hopefully go to 24. And 24 is really a transitional verse. 23 kind of ends the idea of dealing with love here. Now, many of those who hold the view that 1 John has given us a test of true Christians, they view verse 19 to 22 as a digression from the theme of loving one another that runs through 311 through 18 and again is picked up in 23 and 24. They see these verses as speaking about the believer's assurance before God in a way that's unrelated to the topic of loving one another, which is the main theme of the section. It's like all of a sudden these verses, oh, they don't have anything to do with love. We'll just pull those out and make them mean something else. John MacArthur writes this about 1 John 3, 19 through 22. What John is talking about here, he's been talking about love, but what he's talking about here is a matter of assurance. He says, we shall know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. This is about assurance, the assurance of salvation. So, John is now saying, if you want to know you're a Christian, make sure you love it. So, we could be in trouble, right? I don't see verses 19 through 22 as a digression or as the beginning of a new section. This is an integral part of the exhortation to love one another which runs from 310b all the way to 24. So our text for this morning is continuing the subject of love. And he says in verse 19, By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before Him. By this. Now, Hall Harris says this. This verse and the following two verses are extremely difficult from a structural standpoint. Dodd called the entire section a series of loosely connected statements set forth briefly and badly, almost as if the author had made notes, which he found no time to work up. <laughs> what they're saying is, these verses are confusing. We don't get what's going on here, okay? Another commentator says this, there's much confusion about how to translate the Greek text of these two verses, 19 and 20. One possible interpretation emphasizes God's judgment, while the other emphasizes God's compassion. You can see that, well, which is it? They're kind of extremes there, all right? So what are we talking about? All right, scholars, commentators alike take two very different approaches to these verses. Some interpret these verses in a positive way. They would say like this, okay, if our hearts condemn us, God's greater than our hearts. And they take that as meaning no matter how we live, no matter how messed up we are, God knows we belong to Him, so everything's okay. Others take these verses as a warning 
to those who are not conscientiously applying John's admonition about love. So they say that if anyone is condemned by their heart, how much more is God going to condemn them? Because he knows all things. So both of these approaches, I think, run into difficulties. All right? So let's see if we can break this down. He starts out by this. This prepositional phrase is referring back to 3, 17, and 18, where he talks about love expressing itself in practical deeds of meeting one another. By this, by showing love, we shall know that we are of the truth. So when we act in love, with deeds that reflect true love about what is we see revealed in Christ, then we know we are of the truth. Now, what does he mean by of the truth? This is an obvious echo of the exhortation we found in 18. Verse 18 says, Little children, let's not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. So we're supposed to love in truth. And by this, when we do love, we'll know that we are of the truth. Now, what does he mean by of the truth? Well, we've already seen this in different verses. We saw it in 3.8, we saw it in 10b, that uh, of the devil and of God are common Greek idioms. The phrase is not of God, does not mean not born of God. Now, I think that's how we interpret that. We read that they're not of God, meaning no, they're not a Christian. No, means they're not abiding in God. They're not in fellowship with Him. That's what he's using not of God for. It's about fellowship. And he uses of the truth here in the same way. In other words, by acting in love, as verse 18 tells us to, we can know that we are participating in the truth. Or as John puts it, we are of the truth. We are in fellowship with God who is truth. And he says, and we'll reassure our hearts before Him. Now, reassure here is from the Greek verb patho, which in the active voice means to convince. Uh, the NIV here says set at rest. That's a bad translation, I think. Reassure here, I think, is also a bad translation. The word patho is found 52 times in the New Testament, including this one in 1 John. Every other place, patho bears the meaning to persuade or to convince. So John is saying here, I think, by demonstrating love, verse 17 and 18, we convince our hearts that we're walking in the truth. We see love in our lives. We see our love for one another. We're convinced. I'm walking in the truth. I'm in fellowship with God. I'm doing what God has called me to do. Now, the word heart here is cardia. And what's... Interesting, at least to me, is that most commentators, if you read this section, they take heart here as a synonym for conscience, which is totally different Greek word. Sunedesis is conscience. MacArthur spends probably a third of his message talking about the importance of conscience, and I'm thinking, it's not even in the verse. It's a good, I mean, what he had to say about conscience was good and right. It just had nothing to do with these verses. Okay? It says hard here, cardia. The word cardia is found 156 times in the New Testament, including four of them in 1 John, all in verses 19 through 21 here. And no place outside of 1 John does cardia function as a synonym for conscience. And therefore, there's no good reason to interpret it that way here. Alright? It's just not. The Greek word cardia is where we get our word cardiac. The Bible always refers to the heart as an integral part of man. It's the seat of man's personality. But heart in the Bible predominantly refers to what? Thinking. Thinking. As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. Okay? It's about thinking. Now, we don't usually do that with heart, right? To us, heart is what? Emotion. Okay? Well, we got to straighten up our thinking (laughs) and get it to line up with Scripture. Yeah, (laughs) we have to get our hearts right, is right. Predominantly refers to the thinking process, not the emotions. When the Bible talks about emotions, it refers to what? Bowels, your gut. Splagnon is the Greek there. Okay, The Bible even talks about the liver as an organ of emotion in Lamentations 2.11. That's because the Jewish writers expressed emotions such as love and hate by the effect those emotions produced in the abdominal area. And I think we understand this. You get upset, you feel it in your gut. According to the Bible, the heart is what we think with. So the phrase, and reassure our hearts before Him, 
have the idea, they could refer to standing in the presence of God on the day of judgment. It's used that way in 4.17. But the context here is one of prayer. That's the idea of you're coming before God to pray. So, if you're feeling guilty about your life, how confident are you to come to God in prayer? Come in with a boldness, with a passion, you know, come in with your head down, oh, Lord, I know I'm unworthy, not deserving of any, you know. That's the idea here. We know that we're of the truth and we are sure our thinking before Him, we can come into God's presence with a boldness, as the writer of Hebrews says. In verse 20, he says, For whenever our heart condemns us, God's greater than our heart and knows everything. Boy, this verse is so interpreted so many different ways. So let me give you one more. Alright, what the heck? What's one more, right? For whenever our heart condemns us, and we've already talked about cardia, meaning our thinking. So we could say that whenever our thinking condemns us here, condemns is the Greek word kata genosko, and means to find fault with or to find blame. It's only used three times in the New Testament. Here, in verse 21, and in Galatians 2.11. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. You know, Peter wasn't condemned. What he was, was he was at fault. He was to be blamed. He was guilty. Okay, and so he confronted Peter about this. Our heart blaming us refers to a situation when believers blame themselves over not living up to the standard that they know is God's will for their life. And if you have a prayer life, you know that when you are living in fellowship with God, your prayer is much more intimate, much more bold, because you're where you need to be. John refers to the specific sin of failing to show love for fellow Christians. He says, whenever our heart condemns us, you know, the verses are just talking about love, and he says, when you're not loving and your heart's condemning you, we know we should love others. But in our hearts, we struggle. We struggle with anger. We struggle with bitterness. Hatred to those who have wronged us. The context here is love, and I don't see it how anybody thinks it changed, all right? And then he says this, God is greater than our heart and knows everything. So what's he mean? Whenever our heart condemns us, don't worry, God's greater than our heart. And many interpreters have taken this to mean that even when believers stand condemned by their own thinking of their failure to love fellow Christians, it's okay because God knows everything and He knows that you love them. So don't worry about it. That's how many people take this. I just think that's crazy. Okay, I don't think that's the issue here at all. They would say, He knows everything. So the idea that God knows everything means, you know, He forgives us because He knows we're but human and, you know, so go on. James Boyce writes this, Whatever our hearts may say, God knows us better than even ourselves do, and nevertheless, He acquitted us. See, so that's he's taking that approach. You know, God knows. Hey, don't worry, it's okay. Therefore, we should reassure ourselves by His judgment, which alone is trustworthy, and refuse to trust our own. So, don't worry about your own judgment. God's got it under control. Well, and the people who hold this view will use the illustration of Peter. Remember when Peter... Denied the Lord three times and the Lord confronts him afterwards. And John 21, 17, he says, he says to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. So Peter's appealing to omniscient. God, you know I love you. Yes, Lord, I messed up by denying you, but you know I really love you, so it's okay. And that's kind of the idea that they take here. They see the same kind of thing happening in our verse. Stephen Cole writes this, If you know that you are God's child through faith in Yeshua the Christ, then even when your heart condemns you for falling short, God is greater than your heart. He knows He has justified you. Okay, that would work, I guess, if the issue here is salvation. Well, we're not talking about salvation here. We're talking about love. God does know those who are His. But this section is not about assurance of salvation. It's about love. And it's about being in fellowship and demonstrating that you are in fellowship by the love that is being demonstrated in your life. 
And it's about confidence in coming before God because I'm living a life of love. I'm following what God's called me to do. Therefore, I have great confidence to be in His presence. You know, when a believer has the means to help a brother in need and turns away from them, John provides them with a compelling reason to help them out. Here's the reason. God's greater than our heart. You know you should help them, but you're just not doing it. Well, let me tell you something. God's greater than your heart. In this context, it seems to me that God doesn't share the selfishness that's too often found in the human hearts. His generosity is far greater. His compassion towards the needy is much greater than theirs. This fact should function as a reason for them to overcome their self and just because we're called to be like Him. And if we're in fellowship with Him, God's greater than our heart. He's not selfish. He's not limited. And we're to be like Him. Loving. Caring. We're to overcome the selfishness of our own hearts and seek to be like Him. Now when John says, and knows everything, I think he's reminding his readers that any selfishness of the heart on their part doesn't go unnoticed by the omniscient God. When you're being selfish, listen, God knows, okay? Too often we look around like, no one really knows how selfish I am. God does, okay? And He's calling you to be unselfish. Now, if you remember last week, I said that Deuteronomy 15, 7 through 9, I think provides a background on this idea of closing your heart towards those in need. Let's look at the text again. He says, If anyone among you of your brothers should become poor, in any of your towns within the land that Yahweh, your God, is giving you, you shall not harden your heart or shut up your hand against the poor brother. Someone becomes poor, don't hold back from them. What they need, help them out. You shall open your hand to him. You shall lend him sufficiently for his need, whatever it may be. Now, notice the issue here is lending. Okay, hoping you're going to get it back. He says, take care lest there be in any of you unworthy thought in your heart and you say the seventh year, the year of release is near. In other words, you're not going to lend because the year of release is near and all debts are forgiven. And your eye look grudgingly on your brother and you give him nothing. And he cry to Yahweh against you and you're guilty of sin. See, as was the case here in Deuteronomy, I think the same is true in our text. God knows what his people do and he judges them accordingly. And as His children, as His image bearers, as people in fellowship with Him, we should be like He is. So it's my opinion that verses 19-20 through function as a warning against the selfishness of our heart, which just hinders us from helping others in need. Even when we have to help them. We just come up with a reason not to. He says in 21, Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, We have confidence before God. This is a third class conditional sentence. Maybe our heart will condemn us and maybe it won't, depending on how we act, okay? If John's readers and all believers, hearts do not object to their responding to calls of generosity, so they actually provide the material assistance needed, they're going to experience a confidence in their relationship with God. It's like, I'm living out what He's called me to do. I'm loving other people. You just feel good, you know, about yourself and you feel good about your relationship with God because you're doing what He's called you to do. The word confidence here is from the Greek word that means all outspokenness, confidence, assurance, boldness. The word parasia is the word confidence here. This word was used in ancient Greek for the most valued right of a citizen of a free state. That was the right to speak his mind unhampered by fear or shame. Confidence. Confidence. This speaks of open and free access to God's presence. In other words, you're you're with God and you're just saying what you think because you can do that. You have a confidence to do that. Hebrews 10.9 says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Yeshua, Confidence here is our word, parasia. This idea of having assurance or confidence arises directly out of what's been said by the writer of Hebrews. And that is why he starts with, therefore, since we were sanctified, since we were perfected forever, boldness is appropriate and it's right. It's back up to 14. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. 
It's referring to an objective right which gives us a subjective attitude of boldness. They have boldness to enter what? The holy place. This is a reference to the presence of God. You have your boldness to enter there. And the boldness in which we enter is by the blood of Yeshua. It's not by our merit. We're entering by that. Now, <clears throat> we have a right to be there. But when we don't live the way God has called us to live, we feel like we don't have a right. And we feel hindered or ashamed. You know, when you go someplace that you don't belong, do you feel confident and bold there? We were, we were up on Lake Erie. We had our boat up there and we went to a marina. We stopped at a marina to use the bathroom. Well, the sign there as we pulled in said, members only. So I pull in. I'm like looking around, you know, got my hat on. Okay, Doug. All right, hurry up. You know? <laughs> I didn't feel really good about being at that marina. Okay. Now, when we're here in Tidewater, we had a marina there that we belong to. And when I, we go to that marina, we feel like we own the place, you know, because we belong there. We're members. And that's the difference. You know, you feel this because, you know, I don't really belong here. I, even though as a Christian, you know, you belong in the presence of God. Your heart is condemning you because you're not living like you should. And therefore, you feel this uncomfortableness in the presence of God. He says, we have confidence before him. Parasia means freedom of speech. You feel that way when you go to God? You have a freedom of speech? You know, sometimes I'm reading the Psalms and I'm almost embarrassed. Like, you don't talk to God like that. You know, why? You know, it's just like they come in and they're just like, hey, God, let me tell you something. I'm like... Yeah, I feel uncomfortable just reading that sometimes. You know, he's God. But the idea would be to go into the presence of God and say exactly what's on your mind. Confidence in this context refers to the Christian confidence in the presence of God. Either in prayer or to these original believers at his coming. See, the word parousia has been used already by John. And it's going to occur two more times in our epistle. The second and the fourth time he uses it refer to confidence before God in prayer. When you come to God in prayer, you have this boldness, you have this confidence. The first and the third instance refer to confidence before God when He comes at the second coming. So He's talking to those first century readers. They're going to have a boldness in the presence of God when God comes. Boldness before Him, whether it's in His coming or for us in our prayer lives. Look what He said in 1 John 2.28, And now little children abide in Him. So that when He appears... We may have confidence and not shrink from Him in shame at His coming. In this text, the believers are told to abide for a reason. So that. It's a pin-off purpose clause. The reason they are to abide is so that at the second coming, they'll have confidence and not shrink back. This indicates that there's two possibilities for these believers at the return of Christ. They're going to be confident or they're going to be ashamed. Like, oh man, I don't want to really face the Lord because I'm not living the way He's called me to live. In other words, the one who abides in Christ will come confidently into the presence of God. The one who does not will experience shame. And he says, we here. We here is referring to John and his, his readership, the first century believers. He's saying that believers would not be ashamed if they continue to abide. But if they fail to abide, they're going to experience shame. So if they abide in Him, they'll have confidence. If they don't, they won't. When Yeshua appears, those who have been faithful, who have abided, they're going to approach God openly with great confidence. This is saying the same thing our text is saying, but our text is talking about coming before God in prayer. I don't think the other two uses about His coming apply to us, of course, because He returned in the first century. But this is talking to us when we talk about coming to God in prayer. Whatever we ask, we receive from Him. Because we keep His commandments and do what pleases Him. As in so much of 1 John, He is reflecting the words of Yeshua in the upper room. Where He told His disciples, If you abide in Me, and My words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. Loving fellow Christians would be abiding in Christ. In this context, that's that's what we're dealing with here. Whatever we ask, we receive of Him. How many of you find that true in your life? Whatever you ask, you get. This promise, 
I think is very different from the believer's experience in prayer. Do you agree? It seems to promise unlimited answer to prayer. And this is where a comparison of other relevant texts helps to bring a theological balance because notice what John says next. Why do we get answer prayer? Why do we get whatever we see? Because we keep His commandments and do what pleases Him. So here's two requirements, he says, for answer prayer. Number one, keep His commandments. 1 John 15.10 If you keep My commandments, you will abide in My love. So there's the abiding. It's by keeping His commandments. Now this is a third class conditional sentence, which means potential action. Maybe you will, maybe you won't. If you keep the commandments, you will abide. If you don't, you won't. The word keep here is from the Greek terao. It means to guard, to observe. It conveys the idea of take the commands of Christ seriously. Hold them to be precious. You give your attention to closely following our Lord's commands. Yeshua stressed over and over in the fourth gospel. He said it in 14.15, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. So that's pretty clear-cut thing I love. You know, everywhere Christians say, I love God. Well, this is his definition of love. If you obey him, then you love him. Now, if you're not obeying him, don't say you love him because that's not true. 14.21, he who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. Yeshua inseparably joins love and commandment keeping. Yeshua summed up the whole law in two commandments. Love God, love your neighbor as yourself. Matthew 22, 34-40. He says, because we keep His commandments and do what pleases Him. See, to abide in His love is to abide in Him. And so the two requirements given here for answered prayer are, number one, we keep His commandments. Number two, we do what pleases Him. Doing what pleases Him is abiding in Him. Now look at 1 John 2.6. We keep going back to this verse. This verse is kind of like the heart of this whole thing because it's all about abiding. Whoever says he abides in Him ought to walk in the same way in which He walked. So if we abide in Him, we live to please the Father. Look what He says. And He who sent me is with me He has not left me alone. I always do the things that are pleasing to Him. We ought to walk as He walked. He walked in everything He did to please the Father. So how many of us can say, I always do the things that please the Father? Can I get a show of hands? (laughs) No, I'm not not raising mine. I'm asking for you to raise yours. (laughs) You know, it's sobering to look at our lives and see how much we do to please ourselves instead of to please the Lord. You know, we say, I just don't know why I should pray. I never get prayers answered. Well, <laughs> are you keeping His commands? Are you doing the things that please Him? Maybe that's why your prayers aren't being answered. Later in the letter, John says this in five fourteen and 15. And this is the confidence that we have toward Him. Again, this idea of confidence, boldness. If we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. If we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of Him. So there's, you know, if we just ask according to the will of God. So there's nothing mechanical, there's nothing magical about prayer. For it to be effective, the will of the intercessor needs to be in line with the will of God. And such a conformity of wills is brought about as one abides in Christ. So the key to answer prayer is being in such a close fellowship with God that we ask for things that are on His heart. We take up His agenda with our requests and intercession. The spirit of true true prayer is, Thy will be done. You know, often our prayer requests are like a laundry list of things we want. And see, we get prayer confused with Aladdin, you know, and rubbing the genie's lamp, and you got three wishes, you know. That's not what prayer is, okay? It's not, you know, whatever, what do you need? What would make your life happy? Because that's what I want to do for you. Prayer is lining up with God. Whatever we ask, he says. Let, Let me give you a definition of prayer that really changed my prayer life, that really helped me. Because sometimes we get so caught up in our circumstances that we feel like, what's the point of praying? You ever been there? What's even the point? My last ten prayers never got answered. 
I can't remember any of my prayers getting in. What's the point of praying? God never answers me. Well, let me tell you why you should pray. So write this down. And then next time you ask yourself that question, you'll know why you should pray. Prayer is a declaration of our dependence. Prayer is not, God, give me this, give me that, give me this. Prayer is saying, every time you pray, you're saying this, God, I need you. You're declaring your dependence on God. When you're thanking Him for something, what are you saying? God, thank you because I recognize that came from your hand. We ask God for forgiveness. Why? Because we know we're dependent on Him to be forgiven. We thank Him in prayer because we know whatever we have has come from Him. We petition Him because only He can give us what we need. You know, we know that God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. And let me tell you something. Prayer is humility in action. We don't like saying, I need you to anybody, you know, because we're Americans. You know, we're standing on our own feet. We don't need anybody to do anything. But humility is saying, God, I need you. I can't do this on my own, God. So I come to you acknowledging my need. There's nothing in our Christian experience that would manifest our dependence upon God, thus glorifying God more than prayer. God, I need you. If you don't fix this, it won't get fixed. If you don't help me, I'm in trouble. People, listen to me. I could give you a case for prayer from the Scriptures over and over answered prayer. But let me just tell you that we glorify God when we pray. Because we're telling Him, I need you. We ask God to do things through Christ that we can't do for ourselves. And prayer is an open admission that without God, we can't do it. It's the turning away from ourselves to God and the confidence that He'll give us the strength, the courage, whatever, to do what we need. Prayer humbles us as needy and it exalts God as wealthy. So prayer is a declaration of our dependence. And if that's true, then to not pray is a declaration of self-sufficiency. Now think about that, believer. When you don't pray, basically you're saying, God, just step back. I got this. I got this, God. Watch me. Now how do you want to, how do you want to be like that in front of God? Huh? But think about it. How many days do you go with nothing? No communication. And all of a sudden, something happens wrong. And you're just like, oh, yeah, prayer. That's right. Let me go to God. Prayer is an open admission that without God, we can do nothing. It's a turning away from ourselves. And confidence that He's going to provide. It humbles us. It exalts Him. I think this is... This statement here, this one statement has probably done more for my prayer life than anything. It's realizing that when I don't pray, I'm just telling God, I don't need you. I'm self-sufficient. And you know what? God resists the proud. (laughs) And He gives grace to the humble. So I'd rather be humble so I could get some grace because, man, I'm in need of grace, okay? 3.23 says, This is His commandment that we believe in the name of His Son, Yeshua the Christ, and love one another just as He commanded us. Now notice the term commandment here is singular with two aspects. Alright? This is commandment. Alright? The concept of believing in the name or praying in the name reflects a Near Eastern or Hebraic understanding that the name represents the person. The name includes the character, the nature, and thus is much more significant than the term name in our culture. So to believe that the name of His Son, Yeshua the Christ, is to believe more than just the name, the moniker, that we might attach to some people. It's understanding His person. I trust in who you are. Psalm 9, verse 10 says this, Those who know your name trust in you. Why do they trust? Because if you know His name, you know His character. You know who He is, biblically, what the Bible tells us about God. And when you know God, you can't trust Him, because you know Him. But if you don't know His name, and you know, people say, well, His name's God. No, it's not His name, it's Yahweh. 
But that's not even it either. Just knowing His name. I know His name's Yahweh. Do you know what Yahweh, who He is? You know what that means. You know His character. If you know His name, you'll put your trust in Him. Now, the tense of the Greek verb is aorist here. Believe once for all. It points to this, as does the object of belief, namely the name of His Son, Yeshua the Christ. To believe in the name of Yeshua is to accept Yeshua for who He really is. What the Bible says He is. Now, the readers are commanded to believe in Yeshua as Christ, the Messiah, 2.22 and 5.1. They're to believe in Him as the Son, 2.23. They're to believe in Him as the Son of God, 4.15.5.5. And as Christ incarnate. In other words, God come in the flesh, 4.2 and 2 John 7. The fact that the author regards belief as something commanded here is in line with the description of faith as a work. In John 6.29, Yeshua says this. They say to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? See, they wanted to do something. You, you feel good when you do something, right? You earn it and then you feel important and, you know, like, yeah, I deserve that. And so Yeshua answered him, This is the work of God that you believe. Believe in Him whom He has sent. And he uses the singular here. This is the work of God. The singular work is trusting Christ. The significance of the modifying phrase of God indicates that the work of faith is not our effort. It's the gracious gift of God enabling us to trust God. That faith is to be in the one who God sent. That's God's work. It is God's work that you do this. He gives you the faith to believe. The first commandment and the greatest work we can do is believe on the name of Yeshua. Now, some of the false teachers, I think he's directing this in that line, they tried to separate Yeshua from the Christ. They didn't agree that Yeshua the man was the Son of God. They thought all matter was evil, and so therefore he couldn't have become a real man. He was just kind of a phantom. So this is kind of an attack on them. This, this is what it's all about. It's believing in him. Now, the verb tense of believe points to the act of faith, salvation, whereas the tense of love indicates an ongoing love for one another. You believe at a point in time. It goes on. Love is something you continually do. We love one another just as He commanded us. John repeatedly attributes the commandments given to believers as given by God the Father. Even though in John 13, 34, and 35, it was Yeshua who gave the disciples the commandment to love one another. Second John 4 and 5 also attribute the commandment to love one another directly to the Father. So which is it? Is this commandment from the Father or from the Son? Does it matter? They're God. They're Yahweh. The Son is Yahweh. The Father is Yahweh. You know, commentators want to fight over this. Well, I don't know what the... If you understand and believe in the Trinity, you don't have a problem with this, okay? Yahweh is commanding us, whether it be the Son and the Father, I think it's both. They command us to love one another. Now he says in verse 24, Whoever keeps His commandments abides in God and God in Him. And by this we know that He abides in us by the Spirit that He has given us. Whoever keeps His commandment abides in Him. Here we see again that obedience is linked to abiding. Again, that's what this book is about. He's telling us how to do it. He's spoken much about abiding in Christ in different terms, but this is the first time he has mentioned God's abiding in us. But Yeshua taught this in John 15.4. He says, Abide in me and I in you. Because the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. In other words, you're not going to accomplish anything of any value unless you're abiding in me. As in our text, so we see in John 15.10, obedience is a condition of the abiding relationship. Verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. So if you don't keep my commandments, you're not going to be abiding in me. And then he says, just as I've kept my Father's commandments, and I abide in His love. Remember, we're to live like Him. The person that says He abides in Him ought to walk as He walked. And He's saying, I kept my Father's commandments, therefore I abide. You keep the commandments, you will abide. As we walk in obedience to the Lord, we enjoy a close fellowship with Him and He with us. His life flows through us, producing the fruit that pleases Him. Now, contrary to what John 15.10 clearly says, and other texts clearly say, 
Commentators commenting on this section in John, the IVP commentary says this. When John writes that those who obey his commands live in him. Now, the text actually says abide in him. All right. And he in them, he does not mean that obedience is a command out to the commands is a prerequisite to God's dwelling in us. Well, yeah, that's exactly what he does mean. But see here, they change the word to dwelling. And so technically they're right because God dwells in all believers. But the context of that they're commenting on is talking about abiding. And they're making the two similar. So if you're in Christ and you're abiding, they, they make believe and abide the same thing and it just gets confusing. They make no distinction. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God, the text says. Again, John 15.10, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. But S.L. Johnson, he also says this, Obedience being the proof, not the cause of God's people dwelling in Him. Again, he changes it from abiding to dwelling. In other words, obedience is not the reason God dwells in us. Yes, but it is the reason He abides in us. And that's what the text that he's commenting on is talking about. It is the evidence that He does. The obedience that we cannot naturally do. So despite what these men say, Yeshua is very clear on this matter. We abide in His love when we keep His commandments. He said that's what love is. See, love is obeying me. That's that's a simple definition, I think. So if you're living your life contrary to what the Bible says, and then you're saying, well, I love God. No, you don't. I've had the boldness to say that to people. Because the Bible says they don't love God. People don't like hearing that. You want to see people get upset quickly? Just tell them they don't love God. Because to our, in our culture, love is just, I feel good about God. He feels good about me. You know, that's it. Obedience results in mutual abiding. God in man, man in God. God abides in every obedient believer with His presence, fellowship, power, and blessing. But listen, God indwells Every believer. Romans 8, 9, 1 Corinthians 12, 13. If you believe in Him, He indwells you. The evidence that God abides in us is the manifestation of His Spirit in and through us, He says. And by this we know that He abides in us by the Spirit whom He has given us. This is the first explicit reference of the Holy Spirit in 1 John. An almost identical phrase occurs in 1 John 4.13, By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us because He has given us His Spirit. How does the Spirit verify that we're abiding in Christ? I think as it will become clear in the following chapter, we know that we have the Spirit because God's Spirit inspires us to a true confession of Christ. We believe in Him. That's a Spirit endeavor. But I think what He's talking about here, the Spirit empowers us to love one another. Loving other Christians is a supernatural endeavor. When you truly love, when you're truly laying down your life, when you're truly willing to give whatever for another believer, that is produced by the Spirit. And that's what First John, I mean, John 15 talks about that. You're going to bear fruit, he says, when you're abiding in me. And the fruit is love. The Spirit is present with us. We keep the commands, verse 23, to believe in the name of His Son and to love one another. And when you see someone who's genuinely loving, and I'm not talking about talking about love, they're doing things, sacrificially, doing things to meet other people's needs. That's empowered by the Spirit. Now, we should probably see verse 24 as transitional. It means that we know God abides in us because we believe the testimony of the Spirit, who God gave us concerning His Son. And we're keeping His commandments. Now He's going to launch into chapter 4 on the Spirit. But here's what I want you to understand. And I think this, this is what our text for this morning is trying to get across to us. Our confidence before God in prayer comes from our abiding in Him. And I think the reason so few of us get answered to prayer is because we're not abiding. We're not doing the things that please Him. We're hoping He does the things that please us. Okay? We basically have it backwards. When we're not living as we should, people, we don't have confidence to come to God in prayer. And I want you to remember, if you're not praying, you're making a declaration. You're telling God, I got this. 
I don't ever want to tell God that. Because I'd never got this. Okay? I'm always in need of, you know, the simplest thing. But you know, in some things, we feel we do have it. I really don't need any help here, God. I got this on my own. But too often, that's our attitudes, and it's, you know, it's a sad thing because we are very dependent. But prayer is not just a, you know, a lifeline you throw out when you're drowning. It's a, it's a communication between yourself and God. It's, it's giving honor to God because you're acknowledging that, Lord, I can't do this without your power, without your strength. Without you helping me, I can't really live the Christian life the way you've called me to live it. It's a supernatural life. That's all I got to say. Let's pray. Father, I thank you this morning. Lord, anytime I read about prayer, talk about prayer, it's convicting, Father. I know I don't spend as much time in prayer as I should. But Father, I'm very aware, and I try to express it, that I can't do anything apart from you. I know, I think we all, if we sit down and have a conversation with ourselves, we realize that, Lord. Too often we just get too busy with the day, with our own problems, with ourselves, and we don't stop to recognize our need. Father, I know that you resist the proud, and I think it's very proud to think we don't need you. But I love the truth that you give grace to the humble. So Lord, I pray we'd be on our face before you, humbly begging, beseeching you for our needs. And we do it confidently, Lord, because... We're living in a way that brings glory to your name. We're living in a way that pleases you. Thank you, Father, for your grace. Amen. Okay. Questions? Comments? Sorry, I did a little deviation there from teaching and started preaching, I know. but Cheryl? Okay. <laughs> Yes, yes, we will do that as we close. Um, Cheryl asked us to pray for the state. Virginia, um, we got a huge battle taking place tomorrow, okay? And, you know, I, we just need to pray because I'm hearing all kinds of, you know, they're bringing in all kinds of people to start, right, they're bringing in all kinds of people to start trouble, supposedly. The governor's banned guns from the Capitol grounds. Uh, it's just... There's an attack on our Second Amendment right. We talked about this, you know, a couple weeks ago. Um, it's a, it's an attack on the Constitution, and there'll be people coming from all over, and you know, to protect our rights, to stand up for our rights. There'll be other people coming to, you know, I heard there's a group coming, you know, wearing mega hats to try to start trouble, and then of course blame it on the, you know, Trump supporters. But so we really do need to pray, you know, for tomorrow. It's you know, I mean, I've I've considered. Moving to Carolina. <laughs> I mean, it, it's not far to go, but I'm like, man, Virginia, you, if you do this, you know, it's just, it's, it's really sad and it's really scary. So we do need to pray. David? Well, that's the thing. A lot of people, a lot of people feel this way because, you know, this is an affront on our Constitution. That's the law. But we got a governor who is so arrogant, he thinks he can just do whatever he wants to. And I'll strip you all of your gun rights. And then, then he can do whatever he wants to us. So, I don't see it happening too easy. But yes, I, I know that, you know, I've heard from several people that they have, they're bringing in groups. MS-13, uh, Antifa, they're bringing these groups in to stir up trouble. Okay. And make it look like, see, these are gun advocates. These are what these people do. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I know. I'll be surprised too if he shows up.
See, that's just how. It was a technicality. They had too many words in their thing, and they were too late. That's why. I mean, some kind of technicality. I think what the governor's doing is treason, but, you know, we'll, we'll see how this plays out. But here's the bottom line. <laughs> okay? I'm a citizen of another kingdom. Okay? And this kingdom is never going to be taken over by anybody. Because it's God's kingdom and He rules and He reigns. And no matter what happens here, we are citizens of the kingdom and we have to keep that in mind and we have to realize God is in control. That's the greatest comfort I have in any situation, okay? God's in control and He loves me. I'm for it. Right, sure. I don't know how you'd know, you know. When I don't get an answer, people say, God's saying no. Yeah, if it's lined up with, with his commandments, obviously you're going to eventually hear from him. So that, by the second part of that question is, if it's not answered the way we think it is, the time frame that we think it is, does it kind of like conflict with the person believing, okay, it's, do he hear me? You know, so. You ever heard the country song? I think it's Garth Brooks. Thank God for unanswered prayer. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You ever felt that way? Yeah. Something you prayed for in the past, you're like, oh, yeah. thank you. You yeah. did not answer yeah. that prayer. <laughs> you know, that would have been a disaster. And that's the thing. Yeah. You know, God knows. But again, to me, if I look at prayer as I'm declaring to God, I need you. That's good enough for me. Whether he answers this, I, he knows way better than I do what I need. And so that you just have to go in with the spirit of Christ. Thy will be done. God, help me to line up with your will in this because I, I'm, I'm, I don't know where God knows everything. He knows what's best for us. And, you know, sometimes it's really frustrating because we're like, God, this is not good for me, God. This is not what I want. It's not what I need. But you don't know. He does. So it's a matter of trust. Anybody else? Are we done? Dora? Do we need to be walking around cleaning the house? Do we? Is there a appropriate way? To okay, good question, Dora. Is there an appropriate way to pray? Well, everybody knows the appropriate way is in Elizabethan English. Right? I'm being facetious. I'm sorry. But you hear people, thou greatest father, thou, you know, you you don't have to pray in Elizabethan English. Here, here's my take on prayer. If you look through the Bible, you see it in all kinds of ways. Okay? Jonah prayed from the belly of a fish. Okay? So it's good to pray in the belly of a fish if you're there. Uh, you know, standing, huh? (laughs) No, his eyes were open because he waited for that mouth to open so he could get out of it. No, I don't, I think that, you know, Prayer is appropriate no matter where or how. Or I don't think you have to have your eyes closed. I, you know, of course, I think you know if you're praying with your eyes open in a room full of people, sometimes maybe you're distracted by things. So, but that's you know, there's no just doing it. You know, there's not a formula that you have to do this or do that or have your eyes closed or be kneeling. Or be. I think whenever you're praying, it's a good time to be praying. You know, when did Peter pray? When he was on the water sinking, Lord, save me. And I love Peter's prayer. You know, he didn't say, thou magnificent God who knows all. No, he just, Lord, help. And boom, he helped him. Okay, simple, to the point, not, you know, pray however you want. Pray in your closet. You know, uh, the, I think the only thing about prayer is we're not supposed to do it to get men's attention. You're not supposed to pray to draw attention to yourself. You know, that. other than that, pray however you want. Stan? Uh, God lays people on their hearts, and when He does that for me, I just automatically pray for them because I don't know what they're going through, and you know. You're right.
When I pray, I, I ask, I just, you know, no matter what kind of situation people are dealing with, I ask people that, you know, that whatever the situation is, to help them grow in their relationship with Him. Because I don't know if He wants that situation to go away. If He does, He will. If not, there's a purpose for it. And I think the purpose is to help us lean more and trust more in Him.